Morning. I was tripping over my family on the way over here. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 1, uh, verse 19 through 34. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open up to John 1, uh, verses 19 through 34. Uh, my name is Chris. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy, um, and we're glad to be worshiping the Lord with you today. A um, couple announcements. First thing, after second service, there is no lunch on the lawn today. So if you were planning on coming to that, there is none. Uh, and then the second announcement, we have a members meeting coming up October 10th. So that's next Sunday, and that'll be at 4.30 p.m. in this room. Uh, members meetings are important. It's where we update. Uh, everyone kind of updates on different facets of the church. It's also meant to be a conversation, a family conversation, where uh, we give chances for members to voice um, you know, some of their experiences, maybe it's concerns, maybe it's, uh, hey, I've really noticed and this is really encouraging, but it's a time for uh, the body of Christ to really talk to one another. Uh, so that'll be next Sunday, October 10th at 4.30 p.m. in this building. Um, if you would stand with me as we read uh, the text today. Uh, Remedy, we just stand as a um, way of signifying that these are not just man's words, but these are God's words that we're about to hear, um, and we're just honoring him with our body as long, along with our mind. So John writes in John 1.19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes the man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you guys can be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, clothe us today with the humility of Christ. Um, allow us to consider uh, others as more important than ourselves, and allow us to consider Christ as more important than all else. Um, today, as we look at the humble witness of John the Baptist, and also the witness of you and the witness of your spirit, concerning your son Jesus. I pray that the things that are proclaimed truthfully about him that we would believe and trust in, uh, put our whole life into. Um, and Lord, also that we would not just be mere hearers of your word today, but you would make us into doers as well. Thank you, Father, for another Lord's Day to worship your name. I pray that we would do so uh, humbly and lovingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy 19 is not John 1, but Deuteronomy 19, 15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So before we delve into our text, I want to return to a trial in history that's full of the greatest injustice that was ever done. It, you could call it, quite literally, the greatest mistrial to ever 
happen. In Matthew 26, uh, Matthew records about this trial, and he says this in verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders gathered. And during that trial by night, they tried to find any witness they could that would say something bad enough about Jesus that would lead them to then pronounce him guilty and ultimately kill him. But Matthew records in verse 60 of the same chapter, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And then he continues, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest Caiaphas stood up and said, have you no answer to make what it is that these uh, men testify against you? And then eventually Jesus says, you have said so. I am the son of man. I will return on the clouds and judge, right, the world. He makes that claim about himself. And the high priest says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard, you've now heard this blasphemy. And so I bring up this trial in Deuteronomy 19, this, this principle in the Bible of two to three witnesses to establish a charge, because we actually have in our text today another set of witnesses that actually say true things about Jesus instead of false things. In fact, in our text, we have two or three witnesses that are going to tell us true things about Jesus. And the entire purpose of the book of John, this can be found in verse 31 of chapter 20, the entire purpose of the book of John is that we might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And interesting enough, in that greatest mistrial of all of history, Caiaphas says very much the same thing. I adjure you by the living God. He's talking to Jesus. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so in today's text, we will actually get two or three witnesses who are going to witness to a group of people who were likely sent by the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees who later on are going to become part of this sham trial. And these two to three witnesses are going to bear witness about the truthfulness of Jesus and lead us to proclaim that truly Jesus is the Son of God. And so our text today, we can break it in three ways. Uh, first, John's testimony concerning himself, what he says about himself. This is going to be verses 19 through 23. Second, John's testimony about Jesus. This is going to be verses uh, 24 through 31. And then finally, John, God the Father, and God the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus. And this is verses 32 through 34. So kind of our first section that we'll talk about, and you can go and throw it up, uh, John's testimony concerning himself. So John is a really, really important figure in the Bible, in the meta narrative, the grand story of all of Scripture. He kind of stands on the precipice between the Old and the New Testament. Some have called John the Baptist the last Old Testament prophet. And he certainly was one of the first men to actually bear witness to Jesus in the flesh. Um, so, of course, here he's bearing witness, but you could even go back to Luke, right? where Jesus is in the womb of Mary and John the Baptist is in the womb of Elizabeth and Mary visits Elizabeth and Jesus or John the Baptist leaps for joy at the presence of Jesus. So even in the womb, John is recognizing Jesus's presence and bearing witness to the joy that comes from Christ. But in our text today, as an adult, um, John is now baptizing people and he's doing it for the very same reason, to draw attention, to reveal uh, Jesus. So another thing on John, uh, two weeks ago, Pastor um, David preached uh, about John the Baptist a little bit. And then Joe last week also mentioned John the Baptist. I wanted to bring this up because this is very relevant to our text today. First, David pointed out John the Baptist, among many other things, is actually an example to us on how to bear witness. Now, he's many other things, but one thing that he definitely is, he's an example. So Pastor David said three ways. John the Baptist was sent from God. Christians are also sent from God, called ambassadors of Jesus, right? We're to uh, basically bear witness. Second, John bore witness about Jesus. And as I just mentioned, Christians are also called to bear witness 
about Jesus. And then third, John, his aim was that all would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that also is the Christian witness aim as well. So John is an example for us on how to bear witness to Christ. Now Joe's sermon, he mentions John's humility, and he put those two things together. John is an example of a humble witness for Jesus. So Joe mentions the remarkable humility of John demonstrated and is declaring Jesus as the one who ranks before him because he was before him. And so in our text, we're going to see both of those things. We're going to see the witness of Christ but we're also going to see the humility of John kind of put on display for us. So let's look at some things that he says. Uh, the first thing that John says about himself, I am not the Christ. This is verses 19 through 20. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, um, end quote. So, John's baptizing, and he's doing his ministry. And it says in the text, some Jews sent Levites and priests to go essentially investigate and figure out what's going on. Who is John, and what authority does he have to do this baptizing ministry that he's doing? Um, now, the word Jews in the Gospel of John is used in a number of ways. But most predominantly and most commonly, it's used of a group that opposes Jesus' ministry, particularly amongst the Pharisees. So Pharisees who oppose Jesus' ministry, likely that's what's intended here. These are Pharisees who are going to set themselves up to oppose Jesus' ministry, even before he's been revealed. So John gives a very crystal clear answer when they ask, who are you? He's, he starts with the idea of the Christ, and he says, I am not the Christ. But it says in the text, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, like it's redundant, over and over and over again. I am not the Christ. He was crystal clear that he's not the Christ, and I would say almost religiously clear. Like it's, it's the word for confession. Like he's, he's giving a confession of faith. It's almost like an anti-confession. Normally Christians are known as those who say, Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. And John here is religiously confessing before all who would hear him. I am not the Christ, right? And so here we start to see a little bit of the humility of John, that when asked a question about who he is, even when talking about himself, he couldn't help but naturally leeway into talking about Jesus, right? His whole purpose is that people would come to know Christ. And so the humility of John here demanded attention to be brought to where attention was deserved. He's not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Something that we can get from this, I think we can apply it to ourselves, is Jesus saves, not us. Not our ministry, not our evangelism, not our discipleship, not our raising of children, not our talking to our friends. Nothing about what we do can save a person. Jesus saves, right? We could continue. Jesus is the Christ, not us. Jesus is the hero of the story of Scripture, not us. Jesus is God, not us. And so what I would ask us to do from this is that we would take extreme pains to make that crystal clear to everyone who's around us. We tend to think, at least I do, that no one would dare, like, think that of me, right? Oh, Chris, you're the one who saves, right? We, we dare to never think that, but we shouldn't presuppose that because John the Baptist here, who has a very successful ministry in terms of like when people look at it, a lot of people are coming to it. Um, he doesn't presuppose it. He goes out of his way to painfully make it clear, I am not the one sent to save you from your sins. I am not the Christ. So our second thing, he confesses, it's another negative statement. I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. So two things here. Verse 21 says this, uh, they, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the bat, are, sorry, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So we'll take this in turn. The Elijah confession is a little bit of a conundrum because John here says clearly, I am not Elijah. Jesus elsewhere says clearly, John is Elijah. So Matthew 11 13 through 14 would be one example of this. 
Uh, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. For all the law and prophets prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So we have a, a conundrum, right? Jesus says he's Elijah. John says to them, I'm not Elijah. So what's going on? You probably uh, should always just go with what Jesus says because uh, everyone else can be wrong. Um, But there's a little conundrum here. So the Jews thought before the coming of the Messiah that Elijah would come. And they thought that based on Malachi 4 or 5. It says this, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so that's why when he denies that he's the Christ, they immediately go to Elijah. Well, are you Elijah? Are you preceding the Christ? And he says no. And Jesus says yes. So here's, I think, how you can reconcile these two things. Nowhere in the Bible do we see John the Baptist understand about himself that he's Elijah. But we do see Jesus understand this about John the Baptist. So essentially, Jesus knew something about John's ministry that John didn't know about his own ministry. D.A. Carson says it this way. Um, This text suggests that John did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. And so, again, this kind of hints at the humility of John the Baptist. And I would say that would be a really cool thing to hear from Jesus, right? That when, when our lives are gone, when our ministries are gone, when our evangelism and discipleship, it's all gone, that Jesus detects more significance about our own life than we ourselves detected. That's like a, a that's good news, right? Um, it makes me think of Luke 14, the parable of the feast, uh, where Jesus says, at a feast, don't take the position of honor, but sit in the lowest seat. Because if you sit in the lowest seat, then the master will come and see you and he'll be like, friend, move up in honor. You shouldn't be sitting right there. But if you sit in the highest seat of honor, he might come to you and be like, friend, you shouldn't be there. That's for someone else. Go to the lowest seat. Um, and so we should be clothed with this kind of humility of um, not seeing ourselves as significant, but seeing Jesus as significant. And let what Jesus says about us be what stands and not what we say about ourselves. So that, that's the Elijah part, but this prophet part is also important. So he says the prophet, not a prophet, because also along with Elijah, the Jews were expecting a prophet from Deuteronomy 18 to also show up before Jesus comes. So you've got the Messiah, he's not the Messiah. You've got Elijah, he's not Messiah. Were well, you this prophet that, that uh, Moses prophesies about in Deuteronomy 18? That's essentially what they're saying. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this. This is Moses talking. um, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So this prophesied prophet that they're talking about is a prophet that will be like Moses and will do similar things that Moses himself does. And interesting enough, John shows Jesus as being this prophet. And also, he somewhat fulfills various roles of Elijah, and he's also the Christ. So these things are true in some sense or another of Jesus. Jesus himself is the new Moses who comes and performs signs and calls out the people of God from slavery and leads them into the quote-unquote promised land. Um, Hebrews 3 gives us this kind of reading as well. Hebrews chapter 3 compares Jesus to Moses and essentially says, Jesus is the better Moses. Moses was a servant of God's house. Jesus is a son in God's house. He's more valuable than even Moses. So now John, in our, our third point, he actually talks about himself. He, he's not those things, but he is going to claim this about himself. In verse 22 through 23, he says, So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah in the sense that, um, well, he is Elijah, but he doesn't think he is. And he's not the prophet. And then they're basically saying, well, who are you? And then he's like, well, I'm this guy. I'm this voice right here that Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, prophesies about. And so he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. And one interesting thing to note if you're reading in an ESV and maybe an NIV, 
they usually put a footnote around wilderness um, in this quote. And below it, at the bottom, they'll, sometimes they say the wilderness is like the place where the voice is prophesying from. So a voice in the wilderness is prophesying. And then they give the thing he's saying. But sometimes it's the voice cries out. And what does he cry out? I quote, in the wilderness make straight the ways of the Lord. And in Isaiah 40, in the wilderness is actually part of what is being cried out, what's being proclaimed by this prophet. Now, this doesn't seem significant until you take into some context of Isaiah 40. So in Isaiah 40, the Lord is prophesying to his people that he's going to bring them out of exile, which they're about to go into, Babylon. They're about to go into exile, and he's going to bring them out. And he's echoing a lot of the language used in the Exodus narrative when Moses brings them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. In fact, Exodus 14, uh, the context of this is the people are crying out, and Moses is crying out, and where are they at? They're in the wilderness. This is what they say. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And so the scene is, that the, the people of God, there's the Red Sea and they're in this wilderness and they're crying out to the Lord. And then what does he do? He makes straight a path, a highway through the Red Sea. They walk through it and then they're freed from slavery to Egypt. And the same thing is being said here now of Isaiah 40, that God is going to send someone who's also going to cry out in the wilderness and make straight the way for God's people, again, particularly for God. So that, that's kind of the exodus context here and there's something else that we need to note in John's ministry he readily acknowledges later on I'm making the path straight for this guy Jesus in Isaiah 40 it's make straight the paths for the Lord all capital letters L-O-R-D anytime in the Old Testament where you see the Lord all capitalized it's the name Yahweh it's the the divine name right that God gives to himself to Moses through a burning bush. And so um, Isaiah is saying this voice is making straight the paths of God, Yahweh, the, the, the God of the people of Israel, right? John's making the path straight for Jesus. And so already we have imp- implicitly Jesus is being proclaimed as the God of the Old Testament, the God who came to Moses and spoke to him through a burning bush and said his name is I am that I am. So he has this, and he's preparing the way for God. And so, again, just to reemphasize here, this is kind of like a, a negative confession of faith. All the things he says about himself end up leading his hearers to think more about who Jesus really is. And so the humility of John, even when talking about himself, he can't help but point to Jesus in some way, in some significant way. So now the second half of his testimony, you can go to point two. John is now going to directly talk about Jesus. He's going to directly talk about him. And this is from verses 24 through 31. So after they learn his identity, right, they, they then ask him in verse 25, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So essentially, since John has not claimed for himself a shiny title that they were all looking forward to, they're now like, since you're nobody, why, what gives you authority to do what you're doing right now? How are you baptizing people? Whose authority do you do this on? And John answers one of, the, one of those questions in the end of this section, verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. So he's going to answer later on his authorities from God, But he's going to answer right here, what's my purpose? My purpose for my ministry is so that Jesus might be revealed to all of Israel. Um, So let's look at some of the things that he says. Well, actually, before we do that, let me do this. Um, This is a side note about baptism because I think it's it's significant. Um, It can be a little confusing. So the function of baptism is one of revealing. So John's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. John's baptism is not the same as the church's baptism. There's a big difference between John and our uh, baptism. We both have authority from God to baptize. Ours is modeled on Christ's baptism, which here's where it's tricky. Christ's baptism 
was John's baptism transformed by the presence of the Trinity. John baptizes Jesus, and then what happens is the Father proclaims something about Jesus, and the Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus, and Jesus, the Son, is the one being baptized. The Christian baptism is one that's done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's what we get right there. John's baptism was simply meant to prepare people to receive Christ by calling them to repentance, and then it was also so that people would see Jesus when he was baptized. So later on in this uh, book, John 3, 22 through 30, we actually start to see John's baptisms decreasing and Jesus' baptisms increasing, and his disciples are alarmed, right? John's like, he's over there doing this, and there seems to be more people going to him. And John kind of says this again, humble statement. He, talking about Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Because John's ministry was simply meant to point people to Jesus, and then it was supposed to disappear. And Jesus' ministry was supposed to take over from that point on. Uh, I bring that up because this, it causes problems. It's in the context of this book. John is pointing us to that because his uh, audience during his day there was still a strong proponent of people who followed John the Baptist and were baptized according to his baptism. Paul in the book of Acts runs into people who were baptized according to John's baptism. And he's like, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, no. And he's like, well, in whose baptism were you baptized into? And they're like, John's. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You need to be baptized essentially as a Christian. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. So that was just some, a side note loosely based on this text. So let's look at what John says about Jesus, our first thing. Jesus is the I am, and he's also a man. And this is verses 24 through 28, and then also verse 31, or sorry, 30 and 31. So um, in in 28, uh, our text says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. And I just wanted to throw this out as a quick um, way of thinking about John's gospel. A lot of commentators made a big deal about this because Bethany, the city that we all think of, is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're from Bethany. Um, That's the city, and it's nowhere near the Jordan. And so all the commentators are freaking out. Why is this Bethany near Jordan? It's not the Bethany that they're talking about. It's likely another Bethany, but John's using it for his gospel in this way. Jesus' ministry started at a Bethany when he was baptized by John the Baptist, And Jesus' ministry, his signs, his most significant and kind of final sign before his death and resurrection is the raising of Lazarus at Bethany. So John wants you to see the Bethany's as kind of a bookend holding together the life and ministry of Jesus. So that, if you ever wondered about those two Bethany's, there's more information than you probably needed. Um, So in verse 27, John writes this about Jesus. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Um, commentators pointed out, I think D.A. Carson was one of them, pointed out that like, there's a cultural thing going on here that teachers and students, not even a student, would untie the sandal of his teacher. It was such a lowly task that only a servant or slave would do that. And now John's taking that and flipping on its head, and he's saying, I can't even touch the straps of Jesus because he's so important. I can't even do a servant's task when it comes to Christ because he's so valuable. But I actually think there's a deeper level here, and I'm going to emphasize the word maybe because uh, a lot of other people did not talk about this. Um, But I want to give you an argument that here we have an echo of Exodus 3 where Moses is commanded by the burning bush to take off his sandals for the ground was holy, right? God tells him, take off your sandals um, and throw them away for the ground that you walk on is holy. So here we have a picture. John is not worthy to take off the sandals of this new Moses who is Jesus because he himself is the burning bush. He himself is the holy ground. He himself is God. So I'm going to give you two arguments for why I think this, textual arguments. First, the Exodus theme has already been running throughout our text, and it continues to run throughout the rest of the book of John. So I'll give examples in our text. The prophet has already been mentioned. That was a prophet that was going to be like Moses. Jesus is that prophet. Later on, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is proclaimed, and that 
is more directly tied to the Passover, right? The, the 10th plague where they had to sl- the Israelites had to slay a lamb and cover their doorposts with its blood in order for God to pass over them. Uh, and then a third way that we see this Exodus theme is we already mentioned in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, the, the voice in the wilderness, was already taking from Exodus and then applying it to John the Baptist now. And so we have Exodus already running throughout our text, kind of beginning to end. It's going to continue to run uh, throughout um, the book of John. But there's also another thing, and this is the second piece. There's a little bit of a word play, and it, it, it's um, hard to follow. It's a, it's a word play that John's making in verses 20, 21, 23, and 27. And it has to do with a theme that's going to become super important to John all throughout his gospel, the I am theme. So in John, the gospel, there's seven statements that Jesus is going to make that are I am statements. Like, I'll give a couple examples. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are all I am statements that Jesus makes. And John also puts even more I am stuff about Jesus and applies it to him. And the play on words that John is with I am, it's teaching us a quality about who Jesus is, but the phrase I am is meant to immediately make you think of Exodus when God says, I am that I am. So Jesus is making this claim that I am God, right, when he says these statements. So a small example in John 20, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, they ask him, are you Jesus? And he's like, I am. And then all of a sudden, all of the soldiers fall down. And John's basically saying, because it was a play on words, Jesus reveals his divinity and his glory caused all the soldiers to fall down. Then they get back up and then they arrest him. Um, So this I am theme goes all the way throughout John. 80 plus times we find this phrase, I am, not always about Jesus. And John is careful to guard the order of the phrase. I, which is Greek word ego, and am, which is a me. It's always in that order when it's talking about Jesus' divinity. I followed by am. And so far in our text, John has been guarding that phrase from being used about the Baptist. So look at verse 20, when he says, uh, I am not, right? Are you the Messiah? I'm not the Christ. It actually in Greek is, I not am. He puts not to split up the I am phrase. In verse 21, it reads, I not, instead of I am not. Am is not even in the Greek text. It's just implied. It's I not. In verse 23, it says, I the voice, It leaves off am in the Greek text. So I am is not there again. And then finally in verse 27, it says am I instead of I am. He reverses the order. So John does this throughout all of his gospel. Anytime the phrase I am comes up about anybody but Jesus, he guards it and makes sure that it's not ego a me. But when it comes up with Jesus and he makes that statement, it's always ego a me because it's about his divinity. Um, So If we're correct here with this Exodus 3, this is the way that we should see this. Jesus is here being claimed to be the new Moses, and he's also the burning bush at the very same time. He's claiming to be both of those things now, taking part of this new Exodus uh, theme. And I will warn you, I am a... uh, I'm a person that tends to see Jesus behind every piece of wood and every, like, part of Scripture. I tend to see Jesus more than I don't see him in Scripture. The other side of that unbalance would be you tend to never see Jesus anywhere in Scripture, even though Scripture is about Jesus. Um, The burning bush, if we think about it, it serves as a type, an example of what the incarnation and what the ministry of Jesus is. The, bur- the, the glory of God, the fire of God, his own presence is dwelling with a part of creation and it's not consuming it. Jesus' incarnation is God becoming a man and in the person of Christ you have fullness of God and the fullness of man coming together and not consuming. And then what does he offer to his followers? That they also would become part, they would be united to Christ, that God's presence would dwell with them and would not consume us. So John confirms uh, these, these things um, later on in verse 30 when he says this, and he's actually quoting, uh, he said this already in verse 15, but this is verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So let's think about this phrase. Jesus 
is after John the Baptist because he's younger than him according to his human nature. He was born after John the Baptist. But he ranks before him because he was before him. John's saying here that Jesus is eternal. He's always been. He was before me. And that's why he ranks more than me. So here we have Jesus is younger according to his human uh, nature, and Jesus is eternal according to his divine nature. And this is what John is telling us about him. He's the I am, and he's also a man. Now, the second point is actually tucked in between those two statements of Jesus' greatness, his, his divine nature being proclaimed. And this is in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here, John is telling us, Jesus is my substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He takes my place and he covers my sin. And how does he do that? By dying, by dying for me, right? So call Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, boring, if you like. Like, I don't know if you've ever read through Leviticus. Sometimes people will note, man, it's just hard to get through Leviticus. But Leviticus has more blood in a few chapters then all of Saving Private Ryan and every Mel Gibson war movie put together has more blood in it than, those, than all those things. There's gallons and gallons of blood spilt and thousands upon thousands of animals sacrificed. And you didn't really come out of the old covenant. You didn't come out as a Jew, a part of the old covenant, the people of God reading the Old Testament. You did not come out of that culture without this great truth just ingrained upon you that my sin demands the blood and death of another. I, I would say that that principle, that truth, that my sin demands the death and blood of another is the most emphasized principle in all of Scripture from beginning to end. You just didn't come out of it. You didn't come out of seeing all those animals sacrifice all the time um, and not know that truth. So from beginning to end, the blood and death of another is required to provide the people of God forgiveness and a right relationship with the creator, um, our God. And so you need two things. You need someone to die and cover your sin, and you need someone to do it in your place, right? Substitutionary atonement. So let's look, just a quick survey here, and I'll, sh I'll show you these things, right? John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So a quick survey can be found like here. Let's go to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were clothed with animal skins after they fell from God. And then the question that nobody seems to ask is, who killed those animals and who provided the skins to them? God just shows up with animal skins to cover his people's sin. And another question that's normally not asked, why all of a sudden after Genesis 3, Genesis 4, do people start making sacrifices? Uh, Abel brings the firstborn of his flock as a sacrifice to God. Who taught them the death of animals as sacrifices were pleasing to God. Well, it was taught to them in Genesis 3 when God killed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve from their sin. So we got it in Genesis 3. Uh, we could continue in Genesis. Abraham's son Isaac was, you know, taken up to the mountain, was on the altar, was about to be slayed by his own father according to God's word. And then the angel, you know, speaks out, don't do it. And a ram is caught in the thicket and they sacrifice the ram on behalf of Isaac, and a, a, a pretty popular pastor by the name of Paul Washer always says with this story, God reached down and grabbed the knife of Abraham and thousands of years later used it upon his own son, a.k.a. Isaac was spared because God the Son agreed to become a man and die as his substitutionary atonement, his sacrifice on his behalf. Continue on. Exodus, the final sign, we've already talked about this, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. The Israelites were commanded to slaughter a firstborn lamb without blemish and cover their doorways with its blood so that God's wrath, the angel of destruction, would pass over and spare their firstborn uh, from dying. And so here John is saying, behold the true Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We could go to Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. Every single year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest takes two goats and he proclaims, he confesses the sins of all of Israel over these two goats 
One of them is slaughtered and sacrificed, and the other is sent out into the wilderness to wander around as a scapegoat, taking the sins far away from the people. Jesus here fulfills both of these in his death on the cross outside of the city in Jerusalem. We could go to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 4-7, one of the clearest passages about what Jesus was going to do with his death. And it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Finally, Jesus is the lamb from Revelation. Revelation 5.12 says this, Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And in the context There's people from every tribe, tongue, and language that were purchased because of his blood, his sacrifice, who are there worshiping him and proclaiming this about Jesus. So Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And I want to do one other thing with that. I want to talk about sufficiency and efficiency. So Jesus' death here is sufficient for all the world, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of just his people, all the world. So he's sufficient for all and should be proclaimed to all. But we have to remember our purpose statement from John, that we might believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. His death becomes efficient, effective for those who believe. So it's sufficient for all the world, and it's effective for only those who believe in his name. So here John is telling us to behold this lamb and to believe. And don't miss the fact that it's couched. It's in the middle of his proclamation of Jesus as being God two times. So this lamb who is slain on our behalf is also the very God, right? The very God we worship. He became the lamb and was slain on our behalf. The greatest example of humility of all time is when God the Son becomes a man and obeys his Father even to the point of death, even death on a, cri- on a cross. So let's look at our third, final section. And this is two other witnesses, the Father and the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus. And this is uh, verses 32 through 33. And so we're gonna look at the Spirit first. Go ahead and put up A. The Spirit testifies by remaining on Jesus. The Spirit testifies by remaining on Jesus. Verse 32, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And so there's kind of two things that we get from the Spirit's testimony here. We get one thing by the form the Spirit takes. He took the form of a dove. And then the second thing, which is related, is by the duration by which the Spirit remains upon Christ, namely forever. He remains on him and never leaves. All right, so the first thing is this dove. John, who has already done this, he's taken this new creation idea, right? In the beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's already had Genesis language show up And here again, I think he's echoing Genesis by telling us the Spirit descended like a dove. In Genesis 1, verse 3, uh, right right before the six days of creation, it says this, the Spirit hovered over the earth. And the word hovered there is talking about a bird. It's like a bird-like hovering, like a bird. You imagine the spirit like a bird flapping its wings over the kind of chaotic matter that is yet to be formed and uh, ordered. And then God starts speaking, right? And then the spirit just bursts all of God's words into action, 
and all the days happen and, and then creation is ordered and all those things. And so already the spirit has been kind of described like a bird in creation. But we also see uh, in Genesis 8, or really Genesis 6 through 8, which is the flood of Noah, we also see more bird-like language. After the flood starts to go down, right, I think Noah chooses a raven and it just doesn't even do its job. And then later on he chooses a dove and then the dove goes out and it comes back. I think he sends it out again and it comes back with a, a freshly plucked branch from a tree. Um, and then he sends it out one more time like a week later and it doesn't come back, right? Signaling it's good, you can get off the ark and you can start again afresh, the new creation. In fact, Noah himself is carrying on this first echo of a new creation because he's given the very same commands that Adam and Eve were given, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And so our language here using the spirit as a dove is trying to get us to identify Jesus with creation, with Noah and with Adam, because Jesus is the final, the last, the, the more significant Adam here. Um, more so, still within the flood, talking about the duration. In Genesis 6, right, right before the flood happens, it says this, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, that does not mean every man's going to live to 120 years or the limit is 120, because plenty of people live past 120 after that proclamation. What it was talking about is in 120 years there will be judgment where I remove my spirit from man and I wipe off the face of the earth. He's talking about the flood. So my spirit won't remain with man forever. And then, obviously, we get the Noah story. What's interesting is in Genesis 6, where it says my spirit shall not abide, it's the same Greek word, if you do the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's the same Greek word that John uses here of the dove remaining on Jesus. It's the word abide. The spirit abided with them. And so here we have this proclamation of, because of our sin, God's going to wipe off the face of the world. My spirit won't abide with him forever. But now we have this new Jesus, this new man, this new creation, right? And the spirit remains on him because it will never leave him. Jesus now has the spirit of God remaining on him as a man for all of eternity. And it's implying our second point here, which you can put it up, what the Father's going to say. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is on Jesus, Jesus can give the Spirit to whomever he pleases. So in verse 33, John says, I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, and this is the Father speaking, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father sent John the baptized with water so that Jesus might be revealed. But now the Father is echoing the Spirit's testimony by telling the Baptist that the Spirit will descend and remain on this person and this is the one who will baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit himself. So essentially, Jesus now does not wash away our sins like John the Baptist where you go in water, it's like a bath, it removes dirt. It can't really wash away sins. But Jesus has the Holy Spirit and can actually give to you eternal life and wash away your sins. Uh, Bruce Milne says this, um, talking about this baptism. Baptism is an initiatory experience. John the Baptist initiated his recipients into a readiness for the coming of the Messiah. The church initiates us into the visible family of God. Jesus initiates us into God's kingdom through receiving the life of God, the Holy Spirit. So he has the Spirit and promises to all who follow him the Spirit, which will come later on in John. Water can't wash away our sins, but the Holy Spirit can. And here is the one who has the Spirit without measure. That's what, what, that's what these voices, these witnesses are saying. So let's conclude by putting it all together in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Going back to that purpose statement of John, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, John the Baptist is quite clearly saying, this is the Son of God. Years from this moment, Jesus' baptism, will have a sham of a trial 
which seeks to answer this. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Many false witnesses are going to come forward and try to make anything but the truth stick. And finally, Jesus will be condemned for simply claiming what is true about himself. But well before this trial, we already have two or three witnesses. We have the witness of John the Baptist, we have witness of God the Father, and we have the witness of uh, God the Spirit. And they all state uniformly that Jesus is the Son of God. And so as a church, we're called to believe this message. And like John the Baptist, we're called to humbly bear this message to the nations. Jesus is the burning bush. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is initiating the new creation. Jesus is the new Noah who saves us from the wrath of God because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, um, just amazed at who Jesus is and how little uh, knowledge-wise we've scratched, but Lord, even the way we receive these proclamations of who Jesus is, we have barely scratched the surface of how we ought to feel, how we ought to be affected, how we ought to live, how we ought to be transformed. Um, and so we're begging for your grace and your mercy to, to cause everyone here to catch a greater glimpse of your glory in the face of this Jesus and that we would be transformed from one glory glimpse to the next to be more and more like Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that we would be filled with such humility when we go home and we serve our families or our friends, uh, when we go to work, um, when we go to the store, wherever we are, Lord, that we would be filled with such humility that even our words that are not directly about Christ prepare and point people to Christ. Lord, we worship you today on your, Lord, on your day. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.